Good morning, everybody. And go Vols. <laughs> come on, come on. Go Vols. Is it too soon? <laughs> Let me see it. You got to hold it down. You can take it somewhere else. I'll just take it. <laughs> hey, everybody, we're going to be in Matthew 27 if you have a Bible that you can address. Matthew 27 and 28. We're going to be in a few different passages, but I find this one probably to be the most helpful for us to walk through together. Um, while you're turning there, by the way, it'll be up on the screen if you don't have anything to look at. Um, Rich Mullins. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rich Mullins before. He was a musician, singer-songwriter back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, if you're my age and remember the Christian music scene, he was not just in the Christian music scene. He was the Christian music scene. My parents loved him. They wore his stuff out. It was always on repeat. Um, tragically, this guy died in 1997 from a pretty nasty car accident. But two years before he died, he wrote a song that actually won Song of the Year at the Dove Awards, and it was called Creed. And Creed was just, just basically the Apostles' Creed put to dulcimer music. <laughs> not a big fan of Rich Mullins. I'm not a big fan of dulcimer music either. But what really bothered me about this song was the repeated phrase, he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. And that's just the traditional reading. That's the most authentic historical reading of the creed is that he went into hell. Now, as a college student in the very late 90s, I was kind of new to the things of the Lord, but I was discovering new things every day. It was, one, it was a very steep learning curve the last three years of the 90s, and this confused me because I would hear the creed on the radio, to dulcimer music, of course, and I would think, he did what? He went to hell? Why would he do that? What was he doing? Was he fighting demons? Was he strutting around? What was he doing? And the reason I was asking these questions is because the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. There's no real, just clear language on what Christ did and where he went. So if it's not clear in the Bible, then how, A, how did it make itself into a creed that's repeated all across the nations for eons? And basically, why are we repeating it still? Now, some of you have wondered why we've pulled that historical wording out of the creed, and today you're going to see that. Just as a reminder, and I feel like it's important to say this, we've said this in the first two or three weeks we went through this, creeds are not scripture, which is why we feel very comfortable shifting the language around to better reflect what we read the Bible to say very clearly. So we don't have any problem changing that, even when it comes down to what it says about his death and his resurrection. Creeds only reflect what the Bible says. It's not the Bible in and of itself. So as interesting as a topic as this might be, which is what Jesus did for three days between his death and his resurrection, or even maybe more interesting, did he go to hell or not? I find to be even more provocative than those questions the fact that these passages that build what is really the creed is effective to show us who God is much more clearly. In fact, it glorifies him. And then on top of that, it reshapes our life reforms us, remolds us in such a way that we walk a very different life. So I'm going to tell you true things from the Bible today. We're going to read them, you're going to hear them, and that's going to glorify God. God is actually glorified when someone speaks the truth from the Word, someone listens to the truth of the Word, everyone trusts what the Word says. God's glorified in that, believe it or not. 
But at the same time, the question is still going to be on the table, why will it matter for you? Just because it's true might not make it mean anything. But how will this, these truths, reform you, change you, edit who you are? I think this is important every Sunday morning. I mean, many of you ultimately are hoping to hear how to live a vibrant life, how to be encouraged, how to feel like your life has meaning, how to see the purpose of your life. We all carried our drama and our troubles into this room, hoping maybe to leave a little bit more inspired, a little bit more encouraged. And I think that's going to happen. In fact, I think these passages are going to give you great rest today. Capital R, rest. Maybe another reminder, and this is a good place to put this, even odd passages in some of the less traveled corners of your Bible are effective to elevate and make famous the person of Christ, to show us who God is more clearly, to change how we live. I mean, your Bible is not just alive, it's vibrantly alive. In fact, we've looked over the last several weeks over how a creed, like the Apostles' Creed, will bring symmetry and balance to what we believe. It makes us more fluent with each other, with our neighbors. It does those things, but it also drives a deeper accuracy to how we see God and therefore how we see ourselves. And I think what's going to be important for us today is to see accurately what God has done and how rested that makes us. Rested. I don't necessarily mean physically rested, although it can be that, but I mean a deep soul rest. Your soul's ability just to take a deep breath and feel at peace. I think we carry so much turmoil and trouble in our souls, so much unrest and unsettled nature to us that we barely even notice it. It's just become normal. It's standard operating procedure to the point that when God's beautiful presence washes over us, his peace invades our space just for a moment. Does it not feel like you're stepping out of a room where two chords have been played and it's dissonant? It's off-putting. It doesn't feel good. And now all of a sudden it feels like everything makes sense. Everything's clear just to step back into it. I think we all walk around like that. So the truth of the Lord, the truth of your Bible is going to bring us peace today. And this is the big pieces. These are the big boulders we're going to handle. One, Jesus physically died and he was physically buried. It sounds like a nothing statement. It it contains more value than you know. He physically died and he was physically buried. His spirit separated from his body to be in paradise while the body itself remained in the tomb. On the third day, his spirit was reunited with his body and God resurrected him from the tomb as the first fruits of a family who would have the same thing happen to them. That's you and that is me. And hundreds of passages in your Bible will bear witness to this thing I just said. One of them Charlie just said up here in that call to worship, 1 Corinthians 15, which is a creed, by the way. Not all creeds are extra biblical. Some creeds are actually buried in the scriptures, and this is one of them. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is why you care. This is why you care about this. It means that there is no more payment to be made for a failed life and a flawed life. No more payment, which means you can rest. Rest. In fact, I'm going to prove the point. We're going to walk through Matthew 27, and I'll show you what I mean. So if you have your Bibles open, Matthew 27, we're going to start in verse 57, and we're just going to walk for a little bit, and we're going to stop and talk about it. 
But it says this, when it was evening, and this is after the crucifixion, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Okay, listen, this was a real body. It was really dead. And it was wrapped with, with clothing. It was encased in, in, a, in a burial shroud. And then it was in, encased in a tomb, a, a brand new one, where the stone was rolled in front of it. It was sealed. Listen, not too many people, even the skeptics of Christianity, not too many people deny that Jesus lived. Even people that hate God, hate Christianity, hate something like Legacy Church, even they will agree there was a person called Jesus who did exist. Now, everything that he did, that's up for grabs. How he was buried, maybe that's up for, but did he exist and did he die? That's true. Most people will say that. Where the theories are submitted is to what happened at this point. This is where theories come in, right? One of them is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is even though he died on the cross and a spear was plunged into his side, he didn't really die, right? I guess his heartbeat just got really low. And so when they took his pulse, it was barely there. Listen, I mean, they'll give you studies of how this has happened to people. Back in the early 2000s, me and my wife, we actually had to uh, go get a physical for health insurance. I can't remember why. That was a long time ago. But I remember the nurse taking my pulse. And I was in really good shape back then. And I thought, I'm going to be as still as possible. And I'm going to see how low I can get my pulse just to see right? Just because that's, it sounds, that's dorky, right? I just said that out loud and I realized how, how dorky that sounds. Listen, it got down to 43 beats per minute, right? Really low. And she said, listen, I don't know if you're messing around right now, but if I was to find you in a ditch and take your pulse and it was 43, I'd probably put paddles on your chest, right? Because I would think that you weren't even really alive. I think that there was something wrong with your heart, right? And so I guess the theory is, is that Jesus just had a low heart rate, and woke up, although there was a lot of blood gone, he woke up in the tomb and found a spoon or a stick or something and started digging his way out of there. While everyone's staring at this big front door, he's working, he's alcatrazing himself out the backside of this tomb. That's the theory. Or these fishermen who, who can't get out of their own way figured out a way to slip past these elite guards and steal a dead body out. That's another theory. There are theories. Listen, the weight of the gospel sits on the fact that a dead body went in and life came out. The whole gravity of the gospel rests on that one thing. So of course there are going to be theories there. Of course there's going to be a fill-in-the-blank substitute for the gospel there. Because to remove Jesus' physical death, his physical burial, and his physical resurrection is to destroy the gospel. It's to destroy it. Total death and total burial means the work is finished. And if the work is finished, it means you can rest and there is no more payment for your sins. No more payment. That's a truth we pull from a, a, a crazy little sentence in a creed like this. John 19 says it very well. John 19, 30, we have Jesus. <clears throat> He's about to expire on the cross. And it says, when he received the sour wine, he said, and this is to the guy next to him, or not to the guy next to him, he'd already talked to him. But he said, it is finished. It's 
finished, and then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those three words, it is finished, is actually one word in the Greek, it's tetelestai, right? It, it, all it means is payment has been satisfactorily made. It's no more payment to be made. So what you will find is tetelestai, you'll see the abbreviation for it, actually on government docs, business documents, you'll see it on receipts, just meaning enough payment has been made to secure this. No more is needed. That's just what tetelestai is. People would have known what this is had he said it. But it's probably one of the most beautiful things Christ has ever said out of his mouth is to tell us die. It is finished. One of the greatest preachers who has ever lived, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says this about that one word. An ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, it is deep, I cannot fathom it. It is finished, is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. Friends, I'm going to keep building on this same main idea. Rest can begin only when we see how finished the work really is. That's when rest begins, not sooner. But there's more drama to our passage, so I'm going to jump to Matthew 28. So you can go back to your Bible, and it says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, lots of drama here. We've got another earthquake. That's the second earthquake in a week. Guards down, angels talking, body gone, Clothes folded right there. This is incredible, right? These gals are bringing incredible news back because angels had spoken to them and then Jesus spoke to them and that's pretty incredible. But this is what you and I both know about incredible news. It becomes less credible once it goes one degree of separation from one person to the next, which is why we see Thomas and the other disciples acting like they're acting, right? And we all know this. If I was to take my wife camping, we're to go up to the Smokies, we're at Elkmont, right? We're camping, which that would be incredible because she would never go camping with me at Elkmont. But if we were, and I'm, I'm trying to build a fire, right, with matches. I did this like I was going to use a rock, and there's no way I'm doing that. If I was to click a lighter and start a fire, and she's overdoing something else, let's just say she was looking into the woods and saw Bigfoot. Bigfoot looking at her. They lock eyes, and then Bigfoot does this. Shh. And then he runs off. If she were to come and grab me and shake me and say, you're not going to believe what happened. The most incredible thing just happened. I saw Bigfoot. What do you think I'm going to say? I mean, I love and trust this woman. I'd say, 
you saw a bear. That was a bear. They're all over. They're like deer and turkey and all the others. It was just a bear. No, bears don't do this though, right? They don't shush you, you know. I know that wasn't a bear. I still wouldn't believe it. It would be too, too incredible. Well, what if an angel told you that Jesus was alive? You would think that was incredible. What if you saw Jesus and he told you, here I am, I'll see you in Galilee. That would be incredible. You go and tell those people around you that you think would believe, what would they say? That's a little suspect. I think I'm going to need to maybe see it with, with my own eyes. I'm going to need to kind of grab him with my own hands. And that's exactly what happens, right? John 20, verses 19. Stay where you're at. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, listen. This is what I'm going to try to get to in this. this. This is a physical body. It's not a shifty spirit. It's not a hologram that just kind of happens into the room. He put his hands on him. Thomas felt skin, scar tissue, his side, his hands. This is a physical body that would eat fish with them on a beach. Not too long after this, it would be a physical living body that would ascend in Acts 1, right before their eyes. Not a spirit, a body. Listen, Jesus today, today, as sure as I stand here and as sure as you sit there, Jesus has a living physical body. Get your head around that. And he'll be alive with a physical body when he returns to recover his family. And we too will have resurrected physical bodies then. These are, these are all true statements, but here's still the big question. The big question is what did Jesus do between the time he died and the time he was raised? Did he go to hell? Why do we care? I will tell you the quick answer, and then I'm going to tell you why I believe this answer is the way it is from Scripture. Jesus did not, did not travel through the bowels of hell, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with demons as he shouted at them and preached to people who didn't believe for 72 hours. Friends, that did not happen. I know that's the most common reading of the creed, that he descended into hell and that the third day he rose again from the dead, and Rich Mullins agrees, and we have a snappy song to stick in your head for the rest of the day. You're welcome for that, right? But it's not true. I know a handful of denominations and influential church leaders stick to the script, and it sounds right. That's the way I would figure. As a brand new Christian, without really knowing the Bible very deeply, had you told me he did that, I would have thought, yeah, that makes sense. He, he's crucified on the cross. They cram him into a tomb, and he is on his way to being resurrected. Hey, let's go to hell and tell him what's up a little bit. 
Let's go and fight a little bit. I'll preach a little bit over here. I'll rub it in over there. I'll kind of flaunt what's going on. I'll take some captives and do whatever with that. It it just makes sense. And this is why, because that's probably what we would want to do, right? So it fits in our head. But the wording in this creed that he went into hell, it did not show up in the creed until the late 600s. It had been a few hundred years old already. It only found itself mostly in one copy. And even in that copy, the better translation is not that he went into hell, but that he descended to the earth or to the grave. Those are the more likely readings. So the obvious question is, is then why do we keep the errant wording? Part tradition, right? We say things because that's the way they've always been said. Why? Because that's the way they've always been said. That's why. And then part, these odd-shaped variant theologies. Some people will present to Jesus that suffered in hell to complete our suffering, to add to it, to finish it, to finish the suffering. Or to preach to unbelieving spirits. Or to declare victory before his staunchest enemies, or any combination, or maybe all of them at the same time. And this usually comes from two passages, more than two, but two, two basic main ones. One is Ephesians 4, the other is 1 Peter 3. I'm going to walk through them real quickly so that we can move on. Ephesians 4, Paul says this in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, parenthetically, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? Paul's quoting Psalm 68 here, describing what happens when a king conquers another king. They take people captive, they take their stuff, and then they give good gifts to their own folks. But the thrust of Ephesians is a conversation. We're catching a conversation where Paul is talking to a church with a variety of roles, a variety of ministries, a variety of spiritual gifts, and he's preaching unity. Right? That's why he's talking about it. That's why he's dragging Psalm 68 into the conversation. So what some people do is they read this as if Jesus descended into hell and took captives as some sort of a trophy flaunting them everywhere. But we've got language issues here. We've got language issues. Descended, descended to the lower regions, comma, the earth. The most accurate way of reading that is the lower regions, comma, which are the earth. What you're supposed to see here is symmetry. Think of a bowl. Okay, a bowl. Jesus descends and then he ascends. He descends by incarnating, that's Christmas, right? And then going into the tomb, that's Good Friday. He comes out of that bowl, he comes up the other side, ascending through Easter, that's his resurrection, and then his ascent, Acts 1. We're supposed to see this balance in this. That's why it is where it is in the creed. But he is not descending into the lower bowels of the earth to fight the enemies and to take captives. I think 1 Peter 3 is a little trickier. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, some people will read this to say that Jesus went to preach to unbelievers in hell. Maybe, maybe even giving them a second chance. Right? But why such a specific audience? (laughs) Why just these believers that were a little hostile to Noah when he was building the ark? It sounds strange. 
It should sound strange. And, and why so many passages in the Bible that teach everywhere else that there is no second chance to repent? Hebrews 9 talks about this, right? It's, the author of Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The better reading of this is that it's not describing something that Jesus did between his death and his resurrection, but instead it refers to what Jesus did in the spirit through Noah during the times of Noah. Right? Augustine would say that Jesus was present in the days of Noah. He would say in the spiritual realm of existence. This starts to make a little bit more sense. In other words, Christ preached in the spirit through Noah. And remember, earlier in 1 Peter, Peter will actually say that Jesus spoke in spirit through all of the Old Testament saints and prophets. It all starts to fit a little bit better. These spirits were unbelievers on earth during the times of Noah, but Peter says they're in prison right now. Now they're in prison, right? See, these are easily handled. But if Jesus didn't go to hell, where did he go? And the answer he, he clearly gives us. Luke 23 he says to him, truly I say to you, to the thief right next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Now whether or not this paradise is what we think is heaven today, or whether it's what some people call Abraham's bosom, which is a piece of Sheol, that's way out of the scope for a sermon like this. But what I can promise you is he did not go to hell. Okay? That we can square away. Now, Sounds like a bunch of nerd stuff, right? After I talk about how much I want you to have hope and encouragement, and then I drag you through where, where theologians disagree with other theologians, I mean, it, it's easy to see that, but this is why it's important. Jesus experienced all of hell on the cross. He did not need to add to his suffering by going to a physical place called hell. The work was finished on the cross. <laughs> that is important. His suffering was complete. That's why he cries out, it is finished. On the cross, somehow, Jesus, for the first time, experienced a separation from God as Father. But he started to experience God as judge. And he'd always had God the Father's face, always, for eternity. But now he's got the back of God on the cross. He experienced the totality of hell. He didn't go to hell. Hell found him up on that cross, which is probably why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my father, my father, why have you left me? And by the way, whenever he does say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking the first line from a 700-year-old song. He's quoting poetry. This is something that David had said 700 years earlier. Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the body of this, you skip down the psalm, and this is what he says. David says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Does that not sound like Christ from the cross? Just water and blood leaving his side as the spear enters, his broken heart. As he is retiring into dust, he could feel the minutes lapsing, leaving. David goes on, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Guys, this is 700 years earlier. 
He says, I could count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And is that not exactly down to the detail what happens? They're gambling over his clothes before he ruins them too much. Surrounded by dogs, pierced all the way through. Jesus felt what we were supposed to feel. Not God as Father, but God as Judge. Jesus felt what we were supposed to feel. The back of God. No, he did not go to a place called hell. But he did experience it, did he not? He experienced it. Now listen, incredible pastors that I adore and am friends and am even network with and other churches have maintained the wording here in the creed just for authenticity, for historical authenticity. We decided that in this series we would change the creed's wording right there just to avoid confusion. It's just too confusing, right? And because it's not scripture, we're free to do that. But the phrase, descended into hell, what it should do whenever you do hear it, it should lead you to feel the weight of your sin. Just the weight of it, right? It's, it's only when we feel the weight of our own sin added to the, the cosmic sum total of sin that we could even begin to feel and see the value of something like grace and mercy. Before that, you can't. They're just empty calories. They're just words that a, a pastor rattles off from a stage. But it's only when you see the blood on your hands combined with what all mankind has done, which we would call sin, that you could even begin to see, oh, yeah, well, that would mean grace would be pretty incredible. Mercy would be incredible. You see, this part of the creed shows us the receipt of payment made as a dead body. And if you don't have that, a physical death and a physical burial, if you do not have that, then you're left with Jesus saying, it is almost finished. It's almost finished. It's not, imagine that. Just imagine that for a second. If Jesus said, hey, it's almost finished. Almost. But listen, you'll be fine. I got you most of the way there. You're really smart, right? I'm sure you're mature. You've got cell phones and technology. You'll figure it out. You're almost there. It'll all be great. How would it change our life? How would it change your life if payment was not totally made? If the telestai was never said, man, I think we'd be left with the rest of the tab. We'd be left unsecured, left exposed. We'd be anxiously and frantically clocking in to finish the payment with our own behavior, stacking deed after deed after deed. I'll tell you what you would not be doing, resting. Wouldn't be doing any of that. You could forget it. You cannot possibly rest in your soul if God is not satisfied by what Jesus did. The soul would always be in turmoil. You'd be left trying to add to Jesus' work, which is insufficient in this case, and you'd always be asking from deep within, is this enough? Is this enough? Is this enough to wash out that bad thing I did last week or last year or 20 years ago? Is this enough to put a smile on God's face? Is this enough to take the frown away? Is this enough? That's what Muslims ask every day. And so many other world religions wondering every day, is it enough? Have I done enough? I'm not sure. You know, there were a couple questions that the men in our men's Bible study this last week, we wrestled with a little bit. Questions that mankind always asks every day, even if we don't use words, we think it. And that is, do I have what it takes? Am I enough? How exhausting to live a life like that, wondering, is this enough? How, how, how unsettling. 
Friends, listen, I want you to grow. I want you to grow in joy and peace. I want you to grow and feel meaning and purpose, but not from a place of self-proving, not from a place of trying to add works to what Jesus has already done, hoping to finish it. Man, I want you to grow from a place of rest so that when you wake up in the morning and you peek out over the landscape of your day, whether it's a busy day or a boring day, you're at least able to say, God has done enough for me and I'm satisfied. What he did for me is sufficient. It is finished. I don't have to prove anything to him. I don't have to prove anything to myself. There's no one to impress. It is finished. I am accepted. Nothing jeopardizes this love that God has for me. Nothing can pull it away. Nothing I can do. Nothing anyone can do. I am safe. I am free to fall, to fail, to get up, to run straight to God. I don't have to wait three weeks to feel better about it. I can run straight to God, and I'm free to grow. I'm free to grow. I think too many of us live a life as if it is almost finished, but not finished. I mean, I just described the life that many of us can slip into, right? Self-proving. I think a lot of us can see that maybe the indicators of this in the way of self-congratulation and then self-punishment. Isn't it easy to feel, well, just better than other people whenever we can look down our nose and see their performance based upon our performance? We do enjoy that a little bit more than we like to admit, this self-congratulations. It's why we click on the things that we click on, to hear about that celebrity that fell, to hear about that athlete that fell. Any, any bad news, we can kind of harvest together and say, yeah, what? I have made it. I am enough. I can do it. Why? Because I'm not them. But isn't it interesting how we could take that same ruler and move it over here and not feel the congratulations coming from our mouth to our own ear, but we could actually feel this need of just sh this shame wash over us, this place of self-punishment because we feel so failed and flawed, even in our own behavior. Friend, this might be you. This might be, it, it might be why you... You might possibly not feel so comfortable when you are around other people that are intensely devoted to Jesus. Does it annoy you? They just talk about God all the time. They're so committed. They're so committed. They know more scriptures than you, right? They, it just kind of enters their, their lexicon. It just comes out of their mouth. They show up to things. They're like in. They like love and enjoy Jesus. Does it make you feel uncomfortable, right? Does it make you feel inside like you would say to yourself, I just don't measure up. I don't have what it takes. I am not enough. You might even feel more uncomfortable in smaller settings. Maybe not something this big, but it gets into a living room size or a coffee table size, and now you feel it, right? So you stop going altogether. It's not because you had a busy week. It's because you had a bad week, right? And I know you tell yourself, I'll get back into it when I feel better, when I do better, when I am better, when I am enough. Friends, this only means you do not believe that it was finished by Jesus. It means you do not have a firm grasp of the gospel quite yet. You just have enough religion to match what Muslims have, what those Jews have that do not believe in Christ, what Catholics have as they keep paying penance. You just have uh, just enough to apply shame to be a lever to get you to perform. Now listen, certainly we embrace conviction. 
when the Holy Spirit brings it to us. And, and I've said this a million times, I feel like, the difference between conviction and shame. Conviction is a gift of God to you through the Spirit that says this thing you are doing or not doing is a sin. It's bad for you. It does not glorify God. Shame comes in and says, oh, no, forget all of that. You are not good for God. You are not enough for God. You will have to do a whole lot better if you want God to love you. No, listen, you're really going to have to step your game up if you want God to smile upon you. That's shame. That's shame. That's not the Holy Spirit when you hear that. Now, friends, listen, as missionaries, we walk among masses asking the question, do I have what it takes and am I enough? That's what everybody asks. They try to answer this by being acceptable and righteous according to whatever the standards are in that space and time, which change. It's a moving target, right? What's, what's righteous today was not righteous 20 years ago, vice versa. It changes. As a missionary, you are always talking to people that believe it is not finished. How exhausting. They're exhausted. They're exa- Listen, this is what virtue signaling is. We've tried to pick that apart just because it's a common piece of our language today for someone to or not to virtue signal. All it is is just taking the temperature, looking at how the winds blow and say, is this what people applaud now? Is this righteousness here? <laughs> well, then watch me post. And then we post. And, or is this bad now? Well, watch me cancel it. And what it does is it makes us it brings us to the place where we can say, I'm right. I am righteous. I am enough. I do have what it takes because I'm walking with the prevailing winds. That's all it is. Friend, listen, never, ever, ever underestimate how tired your neighbor is, tired of grinding, tired of working, tired of trying to be righteous in an age where we can't define it outside the Bible. Tired, so tired. What to tell us die might be the best news they'll ever hear. Christ saying, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Such good news. There is a God who finished a payment we could never make to give us a life we could never earn. And that might be you. I mean, I'm talking to a room full of missionaries if you're in Christ, but maybe you're not in Christ. Listen, but you've got to be tired. So tired, tired of not measuring up, tired of trying to change your soul in big ways, the ways that matter, not watching what you stream or changing your diet, but changing your idols and your addictions. You've not been able to do it, but you've tried, haven't you? So tired of trying to figure out what is righteous today, what is wrong today. So tired. Maybe you congratulate yourself by measuring your life against others, and with that same ruler, you come up way short when you measure it against other people, don't you? Am I enough? That's your main question. Let me tell you where it came from. God installed it in your software. We were born to ask, am I enough? Now, God is the only one that can give us a deliverable as far as an answer by saying, oh, no, you're far from enough. But I have made payment for you. It is finished, right? It's the only way it's ever going to be answered. We're not going to get it from creation. We can only get it from our creator. But without Jesus, friend, you're not enough. You're not enough. There is a righteousness and an unrighteousness. But society is never going to do a very good job of telling you what that is. But God has. 
And we have been so unrighteous, we've been so rebellious that he has stepped in front of the wrath of God. As it says, the fire has passed on to the lamb, is how Spurgeon said it. He took our place. He took our place. So are we enough as Christians? Sure, but only because we're hidden in Christ. Finally, we are enough. And for the rest of us, there's plenty of repentance, isn't there? I mean, do you believe that it is finished? Do you really believe it? It's easy to amen, it's easy to take a note, but do you believe that he is finished? Or are you still exhausting yourself? Listen, Jesus experienced hell on the cross so you wouldn't have to walk in it here. Take a moment as we sing, as our team comes up, as we take communion together, as we pray. Take a moment and behold, Spurgeon's words, not mine, the most charming note in all of Calvary's music The fire has passed upon the lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. There is no payment for you to make. All your sins are covered forever. You can grow. You can grow. But friend, rest begins only if you see that the work has stopped. That's when it begins. Amen?